Hello, my name is Mark. Hi, I'm Brian. And welcome to the Therapy Shed podcast. Thank you. How's your good self? Yeah, not too bad. Looking forward to doing another another episode. And I think today's episode is... Another round of uh, our podcast. Yeah, today's episode is titled Breaking Down the World of Therapy. <laughs> I think... Um, it took me a while to think of that one. I'm quite yeah. proud of that title. Comes to mind. Are we, are we breaking it down with a sledgehammer or... <laughs> 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 yeah, definitely. Or picking it apart. Yes, picking it apart with a nice polite pickaxe. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, breaking down the world of therapy. So um, this episode is going to be a conversation around, of course, the world of therapy, but the kind of different types of therapies that are are out there now. Some of the, I guess, we're going to focus for today, I think, on more of the the more prominent ones, like the ones that are most available. Um. I think there can be you and I have had many discussions, haven't we, Brian, about the the, the myths and the um, myths and misunderstandings, maybe mm-hmm. both that we've experienced. I'm sure, um, you know, during our training and and from the outside looking in, maybe, but also that can be there in kind of the public consciousness as well around therapy and what it involves and what different types of therapy relate to, what they're suitable for, what they tend to involve, maybe. Hopefully we can give a bit of a of a taste of what to expect if you access in that particular f- you know form of therapy. Yeah, definitely, and I think one of the things why we sort of spoke about doing this episode was because when people are looking to access therapy um, and or being advised to go to therapy, it's knowing what to what to access because there's that many different things people are told and. Um, or not told and I think sometimes you know and I know we're going to cover all this as as we go along but you know the most common probably I'd imagine type of therapy is CBT Mm. Um, and CBT is great which we're going to and we're going to touch on that but it's not for everybody and it's not for every single thing that somebody might be going through Um, but the amount of times people come to me for example and probably the same to yourself and say oh I need CBT and um, because that's that's all they know of. So then, when you start speaking and understanding what it is that they need, it's, it's not CBT; it's another type of counselling. But because people aren't aware that there is different types of counselling, people automatically think CBT is the only one. For example, um, so I think that's why it, it was for me quite useful to to do this episode where we can talk about a couple of the um, different types of of therapy and counselling. Um, obviously, we're not going to be able to touch on all of them today because there's a lot. Um, but I think we're gonna we are gonna look at some of the most of the main ones, aren't we? And sort of just briefly go into a little bit of detail about what they mean, what what they are, what they're not. Um, and then maybe we will have to do a future episode where we actually go into them a lot more deeper. Where you know CBT and spend the whole episode on what is CBT, what does it look like, how does it work, um, person centered counselling, and, and the other different types of counselling. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think you're right. I think a good starting point for today would be having a little look at some of um, the myths around 
therapy and, and counselling and what it is and what it isn't. Definitely. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's interesting because I th- one of the reasons, one of the motivations from, from myself of doing today's podcast is really hopefully to just offer a bit of an insight to maybe maybe um, you know any of the listeners who haven't engaged in therapy before, you know, or um, as I say, like we all have, it's a, in different different stages and different things in our life. I've got an outsider's perspective, shall we say? Um, because m- the motivation for me in doing that is the sense of you actually have an idea of what your what what works best for you, because you know yourself better than anyone else does. So if you're being told that CBT is suitable for you, I think it's it can be helpful to go. Well, I have an idea of what that is. Do you know what I mean? And um, what it can involve, because I think it can happen. I mean, well, it's I don't think I know that it happens. It happens in the uh, the industry as well. You know, it happens in in the healthcare profession that people are referred between different services or different departments for CBT, for example, or a particular therapeutic modality. And it's when it's unpicked and unpacked, shall we say, what what's actually going on for that person. It's not not necessarily the most suitable approach, do you know what I mean? Mm. But it's just, as you say, that sense of, well, that's an overall therapy that, you know, most people get a lot out of counselling, so go for counselling, you can have a chat with someone, whereas if the person hopefully has got a little bit more of an understanding of what that, what, what counselling is or what CBT is, they can have a bit more autonomy, you know, be feel a bit more empowered to say, no, I, I definitely don't feel that that's what I, you know, that's what's going to work for me at this point in my life. Definitely, and I, I mean, I think the other thing to to bear in mind is, you know, um, sometimes people do come for therapy and and they're not sure that the, about the different types of therapy. They just know that they need to come and speak to somebody and um, get some sort of professional help. So it's then down to the therapist to be able to talk to the clients about you know the different types of therapy that they can offer or listen to what the clients bring and what the issue is and for them to be able to help them make a decision about whether they're the right person for them because the type of therapy they offer it might not be best suited to that person mm. um so yeah definitely i think a, and just to kind of reify what you're saying there brian i think a, a really um uh, you know a well well delivered and ethical assessment session should definitely involve that you know it's empowering the clients isn't it you know mm-hmm. what what is going on for you and obviously what is it you're looking to and ex- what you're expecting and what are you looking to you know to get from therapy you know mm-hmm. what's the expert what's the client's perspective so i as as we're saying this is a very brief overview of some of the key therapeutic approaches so I th- one of the ones, of course, you know, where what what better place to start than uh, counselling and person-centred counselling? Mm-hmm. So, what's your if someone asked you what's your what's person-centred counselling? What would your what would you be likely to say? Well, I think just before I say that, I think person-centred is a, a really good place to start because that's probably for me almost the original therapy and the original counselling that that's where it was founded yeah. almost wasn't it i know there was things going on before that but i think person centered which was developed mainly by um a guy called carl rogers in about the 50s i think wasn't it yeah um 
you know there was obviously therapy i think before that but but that was when it really got a sort of strong hold and got sort of quite cemented that actually people going to therapy it can be really helpful and then as a result of person centered counseling um lots of other therapies have then been developed as a result of that but for me um all therapy and counseling sort of stems from person centered would you agree I would agree, yeah, definitely. I think it's um, you could put quite a, a conclusive argument together to say modern day talking therapies, whatever, um, in whatever configuration, you know, whether it's CBT, DBT, what you know, if you, the list goes on and on, in in you know today's world, modern day talking therapies are the foundation of them, or the, the you know the the base of them all is. You could put a good argument together to say is is Carl Rogers person centered counselling, you know, humanistic therapy. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Um, so I think going back to the question of what would I say um, if somebody asked me what person centered counselling was, I think the the philosophy of person centered counselling is that um, people essentially are essentially good, and that ultimately the individual knows what is right for them. And that's essential. That's the essential ingredient for a successful person-centered therapy um, session to take place. That essentially people are good, and um, people are the best experts on themselves. They know, um, although it might not be clear to them, but ultimately they know what they need and what's best for them to help them deal with whatever um, issue it is that they they may feel that they have and with the right um conditions which was part of roger's theory about core conditions which is a set of conditions that are in place within the therapy room that allows the clients to feel safe and to feel listened to and to feel understood and to feel heard that they will eventually by talking to the therapist will able to come to their own conclusion of what's needed for them or what's best for them mm. to be able to move forward um and that's done by again sort of without trying to get too much into the theory but things like self-actualization um becoming a fully function functional person um and self-worth as well i think within person centered it's a lot about sort of self-worth um so I think that's how, I, how how I'd answer the question. I don't know if um, you'd add any more. Sold, to that. sold. <laughs> You've got me. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that was a very. Um, I completely agree with your 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 synopsis of person centred counselling there, Brian. The uh, it's interesting as well because all the things you name in there about Rogers, the conditions that are required um, for therapy to take place. Um, or when we say about the you know that being the bedrock of modern day talking therapies, I think that's exactly what we're referring to, isn't it? All those things are required, you know. And just to elaborate a bit further on that, Roger's core conditions, as he labelled them, the core conditions of of, um, of counselling of therapy, or let me make sure I'm getting these right: unconditional positive regard, mm -hmm. check, uh, congruence, mm -hmm. and empathy. Mm -hmm. I haven't read on that one for a while, yeah. They're, they're but yeah, they're, they're the three main ones. I, um, but there's actually six, isn't there? But they, but but they're the three. Yeah, absolutely. Three yeah. But I won't challenge you. And <laughs> on the other three, I'll, I'll let you off with that. 
<laughs> we haven't got time for that. Never mind about that. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I think that is for me. It was just interesting when you were talking then about the condition, the core conditions. That was the first thing that comes to mind. That's what we, I think, we mean when we're saying that's the bedrock of modern day talk and therapies is for, you know, useful, uh, you know, effective therapy, shall we say, to take place. They absolutely need to be, you know, alive and, and present in the therapy room. I think so. I think the only the only slight difference with um, person centered therapy compared to other therapies yet they for me. They definitely all have to be there, but within person-centered counselling, it's essential that they're there. The you know the the, no. theor- the theory is that the therapy won't work unless they are there. If those conditions aren't there, then that particular therapy won't be successful. Mm. Um, where within the likes of CCBT, for example, for me, it's really important that they're there, and I think it, it definitely if that relationship is established and it's well, then you're going to get more positive results, but it's not the essential ingredient um, for CBT to be successful. It's, it's a very important ingredient, but it's not the most essential, yeah, I, yeah. I, I would say. We're in person-centered. It's the most essential. Yeah, I agree, yeah. And I think that's, you know, person-centered counselling, training, that's exactly what you would be, you would be, you know, taught. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's the... You know, central to the to the theory and to that into the person-centered model is exactly what you're saying there. Yeah, they they are front and center of every session of those of those core conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? With the w- you know with Rogerian theory, with the more I I read and continue to do today, you know, Carl Rogers is um, not just I suppose his teaching as a clinician because he was he was a researcher, wasn't he? And he was kind of the the bits and pieces I've read about him as a person, he was kind of caught up in the sixties, kind of uh, to put a slightly, um, I don't know, maybe a tarnished label on it, but like the hippie movement in the sixties, you know, a very spiritualized time, and he got he 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 was kind of very much invested in that as a person, and I think that's where person centered therapy came from. This idea that we shouldn't be thinking of human beings as broken. We shouldn't be thinking of human beings as bad and need to be trained to be good. Mm-hmm. It's as as you were describing. That's I guess um, it makes sense that person-centered therapy is very much human beings are good and ex- are experiencing challenging or tough or you know if you want to say bad situations and are adapting to that or trying to respond to that. But if you if in trying to offer support that it's in everyday life or as a therapist, you're treating them as though they're insufficient or they're lacking the skills to do it you you go in the completely wrong way about it as far as Carl Rogers is concerned yeah definitely and I, th- I suppose like an, an analogy to compare it to is if you went into hospital with a broken leg you would be treat me and you would be treated exactly the same in the sense of you, you know we both had a broken leg so we'd go through the stages and have physio and the physio would be very s- similar um where with person centre counselling when a person comes into the room and sits down it, you know that relationship and that um way of working could be completely different from the next person who comes into the mm. room in a person-centered way so you though it's both person-centered counseling that would you be offering but the way it's delivered is very individual to that person because yeah. it's about that person it's not about anything else when that person is 
in that room with the therapist, it is about that person and that person only. I think that absolutely, yeah. And I think that's a really important point to make, right? That sense of... It's... I suppose it's, you know, you could say sadly in many ways, we live in, in a society and... I, Personally, I don't think this is a, this is so much a new thing. I don't think this is specific to, you know, today's society. But in everyday life, we don't have kind of 100% empathy and unconditional positive regard and non-judgmental attitude towards other people, even people who we love, you know, with our with our whole soul, you know, people who we see as as close as can possibly be with as two people can possibly be. Those Rogerian conditions that we're talking about, I think if we're honest, they're not usually there, are they? Or they're certainly not there continuously. Whereas therapy is that sense of you are, you you know, you're meeting somebody on their terms. And I guess, and we can maybe come on to this, the idea of the difference between speaking with somebody who you're really close with, maybe it's a friend or a family member, and actually speaking with, um, you know, with a, with a counsellor in a person-centred way. Yeah, and I think it's because in the therapy room and you're working in a person-centered way the idea is to step into that person's world it's being sort of almost 100 percent immersed in, into mm. their world and understanding the world from their point of view while also being um objective about maybe what's going on for that person where i think when we're outside the therapy room and with friends family pe- people we love we often see it from our own point of view and we're in our world as you know we can't fully step into their world because obviously there's emotion involved there's there's lots of feelings involved and you know again the world is going on we've got our our own worries our own stresses our mm. own sort of life we're within the therapy room as a therapist that has to stay outside that can't come into the room um, and and that's the idea of the training that you do that you, you know you understand that when you're in that room with that person that you step into their their world yeah absolutely and i think that's where the that the core condition of congruence um which is just vital it's arguably the most important thing isn't it as for everything everything you're you're saying there brian um being congruent with somebody in their world and understanding things from their perspective um and as uh, you touched on this before, but I think Rogers said, um, only when we can truly accept ourselves for who we are, do we then have the ability to change. Mm-hmm. Where uh, don't quote me on that. For that was pretty, pretty close. Is that pretty close? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll take, I'll take <laughs> that one. <laughs> but yeah, and I just I remember reading that in or reading the, you know, the quote, where it's the effect of that. Um, when I first started training as a counsellor, and I was blown away that was like a wow that's good i like that you know it really uh, and i think again that's just crucial to everything we're talking about so that sense of you're empowering the client not by telling them you think they're fantastic because again that would be a judgment that's your your perception on them you are empowering them by immersing yourself 100 percent into the way they're seeing things the way they're experiencing things you know you're not bringing your vested interests or your personal opinions into the room that's not you know, that's not ethical as a counsellor, that's not person-centred counselling. Yeah, I mean, and you know, it's not about, fr- within person-centred counselling, it's not about 
giving advice. It's not about telling the person what's best for them. It's not about telling the person what they need to go and do. Um, all of that is for that person to be able to come up with their own solution for them for themselves. But what the therapist does and the counselor does is, you know, helps them. They act as a guide, I suppose, a guide through those feelings and emotions to help them understand how they're feeling um, and what they're experiencing to then come to the conclusion of what they then need to do about that. Yeah, definitely. And it's, I've, I mean, we uh, as we've said, we could talk about, um, t- you know, Carl Rogers and the, and the, the key concepts of, of, um, of person-centered counselling for hours on end, you know, we really could. Uh, <coughs> but, Something that's just come to my mind then that, uh, again, just really, you know, when something you learn, something you read, something, it doesn't necessarily have to be specific to, obviously, therapy training, just in, in your life as a, uh, you know, as a as a human, as a person, you learn something and you just kind of feels like it stops you, do you know what I mean? You just feel like, wow, where's that been all my life for, you know, that can't just kind of really stops you in your tracks or you just take a second and, like, stare at the wall and think, God, that's good. Yeah. That's my way of you know, I guess articulating that thought, but I think most people will know that feeling. I, ho- I hope most people know that feeling anyway. Um, and with Rogers, something that's just come to my mind then is uh, the 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 locus of evaluation. Mm-hmm. That whole concept of the locus of evaluation. And I just wondered if, um, you know, just to share that really, what is the locus of evaluation? And, the importance of that, I guess, when just learning that as a concept, uh, why why could that be be valuable to a to a client in therapy? So I think the locus of evaluation, um, you know, sort of a very quick explanation of it is we the theory is that we have a internal locus of evaluation and an external locus of evaluation, and basically that what that means is if we are as a person going making needing to make a decision about something if we trust our own locus of evaluation we are confident and happy to make that decision um, and we will make it without worrying about if it's the right or wrong decision and even if it's the wrong decision it doesn't matter we, we have the confidence within ourselves to um, make them decisions where if we look for an external locus of evaluation it's seeking that reassurance from others so i need to make a decision about myself that's based on myself but i i don't have the confidence within me to be able to do that so i have to go and seek that from other people the problem with that is sometimes what that other person might feel is best for you might not be best for you Mm. and then they make a decision they they tell you what they think is the right decision so then you take that on board, you go and do what, make that decision and it's the wrong decision or it doesn't work out, um, then that can cause more emotional distress. So it's about working on becoming more trusted in your own feelings around making the right decisions and your own opinions. And a lot of that then stems into um, self-actualization trust yeah. in your own judgment your own feelings um being confident enough to trust how you feel and i think the um 
the key thing with which you've just been you know just described Brian the key thing with locus of evaluation as well is if somebody is telling you what to do whether you feel like well a therapist can tell me what to do which you know I'm sure we both had that experience you know we're both clinicians we've both had the experience of of a client wanting us to you know well what do you think what do you think I should do and of course any as any ethical practitioner will um I'm sure we'll, would say that's not your job and it, it's actually very unethical to just start telling the client what they should and shouldn't be doing. That's not what therapy is at all. But obviously, as you say, in everyday life, that can sometimes be, a, well, I'll ask that person. And although that can be helpful, there's actually an awful lot of research that shows that it can it can lead to a, um, a more depleted self-esteem. It can lead to a decrease in your significant decrease in your self-esteem because, of course, if somebody else is telling you what to do, if it goes well, maybe consciously but certainly subconsciously you interpret that as that's great that was because you know uncle frank told me what to do so i'll go back to him next time i need some advice you're not actually empowering yourself at all you're not developing your own you know your own self-worth and your own sense of self equally if you ask uncle frank what to do and it doesn't go so well you blame uncle frank so you're also not empowering yourself you're not if you know you're not evolving as a as you said before as like a, a as a as a person, as a fully functioning person. So your self-esteem can become ever more fragile if you've got that sense of a real external locus of evaluation. You know, you're always depending on, on other people for their judgment as to what you should be doing with your time. So I think that's a crucial thing in, in counselling as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, asking someone for some advice about whether you, you, you might be thinking of buying a new car, for example, and you're a little bit unsure what model to get, so you ask someone for some advice because you don't know a lot about cars, and they give you some advice. You know that's that that that's in its fair, fine. That's that that's pretty normal, isn't it? Mm. But if you were making a decision that was maybe more around, you know, let, let's just say for an example, a relationship, whether to stay into in, in a relationship or not to stay in a relationship, but you don't feel you can make that decision yourself because you don't trust your locus of evaluation so you then have to go and speak to somebody else to see whether you should leave a relationship or not mm. you, you know that that's Definitely. not really healthy um if you you should a person should get to a point where they trust their own judgments about what they need to do in, in that type of situation absolutely yeah i think i mean on the car analogy that you use there buying a car i think in some respects i was just when you were just when you I was listening to you speaking there, Brian. I was thinking it'd be with the sense of locus of evaluation, yet it makes perfect sense to say to Uncle Frank, he knows about cars and he understands them far better than I do. I'll ask him because he knows the score with cars. That can be a, you know, make sense. That could be really useful and constructive thing. But if you then say to Uncle Frank, how do you think I should feel when I'm driving this car? That's where your locus of evaluation, is, you know, is can be really skewed. Yeah. Um, I think that's, you know, not stretching that analogy too much to say that's where Rogers would say your locus for valuation is always on a, on that um, continuum between an internal and an external. But I think Rogers said, uh, excuse me, Rogers said that if it's imbalanced one way or the other, whether it's extremely internal or, of course, extremely external, that's when it can be unhealthy. Yeah, for for yourself as a person. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and you can just be, you know, we can, the, you know, with person-centered counselling, as you say, there's there's lots of um, theory that backs up, you, you know, um, 
the the actual practice of it um and we could speak about it all day and i think like we said at the beginning it may be helpful to um have an episode that's specifically around person-centered counseling um, i know we're probably going to touch on cbt now as well um, and again we'll probably what we will talk about today will only be a bit of a um snapshot really snapshot an overview, and yeah. an overview um, the same way as what we're doing here with with person centers definitely i mean these are obviously um as uh, as as we've mentioned you know these are w- therapeutic modalities that are delivered worldwide now you know they're two of the most person centered counseling and cbt which we'll come on to now uh, are two of the most accessible therapies um in in across the world today so we could talk you and i particularly <laughs> we don't need we don't need a big subject to get a lot of uh, long conversation going do we Brian? but yeah we could um we could t- so we will defi- definitely do future episodes maybe in a bit more in depth of whether it's person-centred or key areas of person-centred, and of course CBT as well. But just before we move on to CBT, what would you say, if I can ask you, Brian, what would um, what would you say is suitable for counselling as a as a person? What sort of problems or issues may I be struggling with where counselling could be a useful therapy to access? So certainly things like um, like bereavement. Um, is is one that I would say um person centered can really work well with um bereavement or any type of loss as in a maybe a relationship breakup or any other type of loss, even you know, sometimes even like a job for example. Um one anything that sort of is a normal emotion that people go through. So, you know, for example, bereavement, C B T wouldn't necessarily work well with bereavement because you can't necessarily change the way you think if you've had a bereavement because a bereavement is sad. It it it, it generates a lot of emotion and it's a lot of normal emotions to feel sad. Obviously, if you suffer a bereavement, but what can sometimes happen is after a period of so many months, um, a person still really struggling with them feelings and emotions around that bereavement, coming to counselling to talk about that and you know look at that will help them understand what they need to do to sort of help them I want to say move on from that but but help them understand why they're feeling the way they're feeling definitely yeah yeah I agree and like help them and offer and offer that uh, again to come back to with that active listening in mm-hmm. counseling you know mm-hmm. that environment where they have 100 percent you know focus and time for themselves for the, for their actual selves you know and their emotional self of course i think is just can be, can be you know can can mean everything and can be really um uh, really powerful for for a person who's going through something like bereavement um and as we said you know active listening i think that sense of not just feeling like you're in a conversation you're just having a chat even with somebody you're really close to of course that would help and activating support networks is a is a crucial part of you know self-care and and of of, of therapy really as well but it's not just having a chat i guess when as we're saying with therapy and with counseling it's about the active listening that you're not judging the person and you're not so much colluding with them in some ways Mm -hmm. 
you're actively listening to them and accepting their 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 world and their perspective on things. So yeah, I completely agree. That's bereavement. I think is can be extremely powerful for being able to to go through that process of of loss. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and even things you know sometimes when people just feel they've lost themselves a little bit, um, they're not sure what what what's going on for them. They just feel a little bit lost within themselves. Mm. Um, coming and having person sent for counselling, where they can just sit down and talk about how they're feeling or what's going on for them and in a way like you've said about with all the conditions not feeling judged um, being able to just speak openly and talk about whatever it is that comes up for them because eventually at the end of that hopefully by doing that and it's done in the right way that they will then start to gain an understanding of themselves and, and who they are maybe that they felt that they lost maybe a little bit yeah, definitely. It's interesting you say that because it reminds me of um, some stats I saw. Over, I think it's over the last decade or something. I'd, I should have, I should uh, look this up really, but I think it's over the last decade, year on year, one of, if not the most googled question, shall we say, the most googled thing is, "Who am I?" or "How do I find out who I am as a person?" Um, uh, questions that essentially relate back to personal identity learning about yourself as a person and I just think that's a really relevant um, you know thing if you like relevant stats for person centered counselling is it can be it can be a really powerful experience a really powerful um, you know environment and relationship for actually learning about ourselves you know identity is a crucial part of us being able to as you said before have that self-actualization you know that that um, that sense of being, to use a slightly, I guess, a slightly cliche turn of phrase, to be the best version of ourselves, is actually understanding ourselves. You know, definitely. And I think you know, although it, it might sound like a bit of a cliche, but I do think it is about being able to offer the best version of, of ourselves. Definitely, yeah. I think you know, if we can offer the best version ourselves to ourselves, then that's only going to make us feel empowered. It's going to make us feel you know, worthy, it's gonna um it's gonna ultimately allow us to be there for other people. Yeah. Sold again. <laughs> <laughs> um so s- we were t- we we're talking about uh CBT. Now as we said before, CBT is probably I think uh, I would my hunch would be it's the most widely known why or certainly widely heard of, heard about mm-hmm. uh therapy in in the UK today maybe worldwide today um so for for those who may not be aware CBT stands for cognitive behavioral therapy um and it really exploded in terms of an accessible therapy initially in the in the 1990s and then in the 2000s with the NHS rolling out the IAPT model, the improving access to psychological therapies. I think CBT was kind of front and centre of of that, um, I- you know, that offer uh, of, of, of therapeutic support. So, as I say, cognitive behavioural therapy. So CBT again. This is an, this is you know a brief overview. CBT looks to um, have a look at our our thoughts and our behaviours, how we interpret situations, how we make sense of 
a situation or a particular experience that we've had that we may have found challenging or problematic. Um, and it looks at things like what, with what, what are known as cognitive distortions, so how we may be interpreting a situation based on our purely subjective view in and leading to negative assumptions or very self-critical assumptions about ourselves. Um, a key component of CBT is it's goal-orientated. So almost always in CBT from the begin in, in the early sessions during the assessment usually you'll you'll work with your with your therapist to identify the goal. What is it you're looking to get out of therapy? So my personal way of if, of kind of talking that through with a client is I always say what's the overall therapy goal? So we can have many goals along the way and you know targets and stepping stones, but what is it if therapy goes well? What you're looking to? to achieve out of therapy so I think it straight away that's where it differs a little bit from person-centered counseling mm-hmm. because it is very much you, you identify a postcode and you look towards you work you find a way that works best for the for the client to you know to navigate towards that um, it's it involves a bit of homework I try and avoid that word if I'm <laughs> honest with you Bri I um, always has negative connotations when you say homework that's when you go, oh I'm not doing that I use tasks. I normally say, right, so the task for this week. Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because even homework for me, it, it, it brings back memories of school, and I hated homework. So trying to, for me to try and say to somebody, I've got some homework for you, um, just doesn't sit well yeah. with me. And sometimes, again, th- and that's more about me than than, than the client. Um, so what, but I use tasks. The, the task for this week is... Yeah, definitely. Weekly tasks. So it does involve that. So it involves either... I guess some of the some of the main examples of you know tasks would be like behavioural experiments, or um, we'll look at like uh, worksheets on you know cognitive appropriation. So we'll look at how you've uh, what beliefs have you got, what other ways are there of looking at that. Um, so for example, if someone maybe thinks I always get shouted at in work. It could be a negative belief, you know, negative self belief that I'm rubbish at jobs or I'm rubbish at my job. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you could look at challenging that belief and saying, right, okay, well, what happened? Let's look at are there any other ways that we could understand that? Are there any other factors that we might not be taking into account when we're coming to that self judgment of I'm rubbish at my job? And you could look at maybe an alternative perception could be, well, I'm struggling with certain areas of my job, but I'm trying to improve, and I'm actually getting really good feedback in other areas, or other people are struggling as well at the moment, so it doesn't define me as a person. So that's just an example off the top of my head of how... Or, or my manager that just likes to shout. Exactly, yeah. Or, I don't like my job. <laughs> it was a nice way of saying, I'm not rubbish at my job, I just don't like it. Yeah, exactly. So we look at, in CBT, that's more, that's very CBT-centric. You look at how you how you're conceptualizing and the, the perceptions you have on on your experiences is there a, are we taking in all of the av- all of the you know the situation into account before we come up with these maybe self judgments may uh, either about ourselves or about or of course about other people as well and i also like the idea with in within cbt that um we we can really um get to challenge those thoughts th- th- those negative thoughts as well um and and that can be quite useful within CBT, I find, actually challenging those negative thoughts because a lot of the time 
a person will have a thought and because they've had that thought they'll just run with it mm. um, i always describe it to clients as um, like we run those disaster movies or those horror movies in our head so we have a thought and because we've had that thought we automatically think it's real or we believe that it's real definitely yeah. we're actually when we challenge it um and when i say we challenge it and talking like when the client starts to challenge those thoughts themselves that's when actually they can um start realizing that a thought is just a thought just because we have a thought doesn't mean it's real or it's true and that's where i find cbt really helpful for people once people start understanding that just because we have a thought it doesn't automatically mean that it's true yeah absolutely i agree and that's very you know the way i i work in cbt and i guess that's the way cbt practitioners should work that's the way the training is is centered around the idea that you are not your thoughts you know, we have thousands of thoughts consciously and certainly in our subconscious mind every day, thousands of thoughts every day. And for maybe a number of reasons that maybe we're, we're aware of in the moment, maybe we're not aware of, and therapy can help with that. For whatever reason, or the number of reasons, we've ten- we've given a lot of importance and a lot of meaning to this particular thought or this, th- you know, these particular negative thoughts or thoughts of very self-judgment i think it's the thought you know obviously when we, when we have a thought um, if it feeds into our negative beliefs about ourselves mm. then that's what gives it the the energy or the, the, the fire doesn't it for us to latch onto that thought where if we have a thought that doesn't affect our the beliefs that we have about ourselves then it's quite easy to let it go um, but if it feeds into what th- those beliefs that we already have that that's when it becomes um more sort of emotionally distressing yeah definitely i completely agree and it reinforces you know negative beliefs doesn't it and i guess it if if our self-esteem is quite fragile or maybe you know we're struggling for for confidence whatever it may be or again to come back to the person-centered understanding you know struggling for self-identity um having you know negative automatic thoughts or real negative self-beliefs it can it can reify that that, you know a fragile self-esteem it can reify internal beliefs of i'm not good enough or everyone just gets on with things and i can't or you know those real sort of quite vicious you know judgments about ourselves Mm -hmm. and if we have negative thoughts as you as you're saying brian i agree that can be that can reinforce that and unfortunately, it can become a really, you know, it can lead to, of course, you know, things such as depression and severe depression or severe anxiety. Um, it can really lead to a lot of pain. So that's the intention and the hope is that that's where therapy can be of, of, of real value to, you know, to a person who may be experiencing that. Yeah, definitely. I think y- you asked me at the beginning around sort of how would I almost define person-centered counselling and, and I think I use like, the philosophy of person-centered counsel. I think with with CBT, if you were to ask me that same question, I'd I'd probably say, you know, CBT helps to recognise negative thoughts, to break the habit of those thoughts, and to find a more positive way of thinking. Mm. And you know, CBT is really good for for that. I think with, um, and again, I'm I'm I'm, I'm aware that I don't want to start getting into mentioning certain sort of, um theories around it because time to even explain them will will take too much time and like i said maybe us doing an an episode specifically on cbt would be good to do yeah definitely Um, i'm sure we will yeah 
but just things like you, you know a really simple CBT type um, technique would be you know when people have really negative thoughts that maybe um, then cause anxiety is looking at things like you know just that back to that challenging of okay well what what's what's the worst case scenario what's the best case scenario what's the most likely scenario when you actually start doing those types of exercises where you are using your um, more logical thinking and the challenging and actually sitting down and thinking about it rather than just letting that thought run away that's when it actually starts becoming really helpful that's when you can actually start change the way you think about certain things and certain situations yeah definitely and I think it's as you say and that's hopefully where therapy can be um, can be useful you know can be really really useful it's giving somebody an opportunity to do that self reflection you know and to question their thoughts as you say and um, and look to see well what what type of person is does the evidence suggest I am you know when I actually object try and look at it as objectively as I can and, and do that self reflection and also what type of person do I actually want to be you know and finding I guess somewhere you know you, you look to find that middle ground where you're like what type of person do I want to be what type of person does you know it, it, do I realistically feel like I can be and doing that I think that a lot of that is can just be so valuable in in therapy sessions because it, again it's empowering for the for the individual isn't it definitely and I think the thing with being empowering which is really good and what I really like about CBT and it can be used in person centered but more CBT is the psychosocial education around you know helping the person understand what thought processes are what automatic negative thoughts are and um, how our brain works chemically um, in regards to sort of anxiety and you know for thoughts feelings and behaviors where in CBT we we, we teach that to the client so the client understands oh okay so the reason why I'm thinking these things is because my brain works in this this particular way which is the same as um, everybody else's brain you know I know we all think differently but our brain function all works the same so I, I really like the CBT element of that as I, as I say the psychosocial education of actually teaching people to understand why they are feeling or thinking or acting in a particular way and um, I think that, that that's another really good positive to CBT for me yeah oh yeah crucial absolutely crucial I couldn't agree more um, it's it's interesting you put you, you kind of highlight that as well Brian because the amount of times I've had conversations with clients and sometimes I can feel like I've become a little bit self-conscious thinking this isn't, I'm not teaching them psychology, you know, mm -hmm. so I'm mindful not to, and I might share that with the clients. I've done that on a number of occasions where you say, you know, I don't want to go off on a tangent or is this helpful, me sharing this with you? And every single time without fail, I think that is really empowering and really always, every client without fail that I've worked with has said that they find so much value and use in just having a, a bit of a baseline understanding of psychoeducation, as you say, just how the mind works and some basic techniques that we can use to just stimulate and, you know, affect the, the mind in a positive way. Um, 
and that's yeah very much again yeah that's very much in in the world of CBT it's looking at what can I do to positively impact my mood and and my you know the way I the way I think um so yeah the psychoeducation element is massive I mean with that that's it's room you know room one of the of the therapeutic process with CBT is mm-hmm. actually having those conversations around you know you're not telling the clients about them in their personal self you're talking about it almost in a scientific sense aren't you you know yeah, yeah. i mean i i have a, a obviously listeners can't see it but um i have a model of a brain um that often when people are talking about anxiety i am um, i will get the model out and show them the inside of the brain and it's got all the different elements to the brain and just just you know explain how it works and in, in where the anxiety comes from and you know the difference between sort of the amygdala and um, your frontal lobe and sort of just you know and, and it sounds because quite technical but you know what as you say it's not you know teaching them it's not spending hours and hours and hours talking no. about it it's just giving a brief overview and a bit of an education around how our brains work in a very simplistic way because i only know it in quite a simplistic way but it's enough for that person to go oh, okay so that is normal i am normal the way i think and feel is is normal definitely you know? yeah i i agree and and it's no, I, 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 um, it completely resonates what you're saying, you know, working with clients and myself when I first started learning that, you know, a good few years ago now, but when I started learning about psycho, psychobiology and, you know, um, um, I guess uh, cognitive psychology as well, that sense of just that psychoeducation, those fundamental understandings, they can just, they can completely change your self perception. They really can, you know, and, um, I almost feel like it's it's just when we feel vulnerable, we often feel of it's uh, again as you say without going off on a tangent too much in this episode. We it can be what the emotional brain, like uh, controlled by the the uh, the areas of the brain that are in charge of our kind of primary emotions. And when we feel vulnerable, we understandably can go into defense mode because the br- the mind feels like well I need to protect myself, I need mm-hmm. to survive. So physiologically and psychologically, we can we can go into that kind of survival mode if that's being driven by anxiety or you know a lot of self-criticism it can actually not be necessary you know it's often not if someone's in therapy they'll say yeah and I know looking back I didn't need to be that worried or that panicked or that kind of scared or whatever it may be but it just felt so horrible and so powerful in the moment and I think just understanding that the mind is is it's designed to protect us do you know what I mean it's, mm-hmm. it's designed to look after us so that's what it's trying to do it is trying to actually keep us safe. It's n- in many ways, this isn't to be dismissive, of course not, or, or reductive in any way. But in many ways, it's completely normal what the mind is doing. Yeah. Um, anxiety in a lot of ways is normal. And I know that can sound like a... Um, that's not to say we're wanting people to just just accept it and get on with it. Of course, it's the exact opposite in from from a therapist's perspective. And, and you and I, I'm sure... We've had many conversations where our job essentially is the exact opposite of saying just get on with it and be be dismissive. Of course not. But what we are saying is, it's human to experience, you know, an- for example, anxiety. Mm. It's human to feel, you know, a bit rubbish sometimes. Therapy is not about finding, you know, fixing the client to a point where they're never going to experience any any bad or any, you know any difficult emotions again that's mm. you, you wouldn't be a human we're not robots do you know what i mean it's about it's about for example you, you know what you're saying there i think is if um 
but when pe- a person comes to therapy with anxiety, say, we're not necessarily stopping the anxiety. We might hopefully be able to reduce the anxiety, but it's more about helping the client recognize anxiety maybe when it's getting bad and also having the tools to be able to manage that anxiety because like you said we can't get rid of anxiety completely and uh, you wouldn't want to actually because anxiety does play a part in keeping us safe it's it's that that part of the brain that produces anxiety is the part of the brain that acts very quickly so and and sort of an analogy that i use with people is um if i throw a tennis ball at your head you would that same part of your brain where anxiety starts is the same part of the brain that would wouldn't think it would just react and it would just catch that tennis ball and it stop you from it hitting you in the head where if you use the other side of your brain the more logic part of your brain that part of the brain would be thinking okay so there's a tennis ball flying at my head if it hits me it'd hurt so do we need to catch it should i catch it with my right hand or should i catch it with my left hand by the time you've gone through that thought process, the tennis ball will hit you in the head. Mm, right, yeah, yeah. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Where, you know, if I throw a tennis ball instinctively, you just hold your hands up and you catch it. You might miss and it might still hit you in the head, but generally, that's what you do. And that that's the same area of the brain where anxiety is produced. And, um, so anxiety can sometimes be a, a good thing. Yeah, the function of it, I, I, I agree, yeah. The... Um it's pretty, you know. It's good to that the mind is 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 you know fundamentally structured to protect us. You know that is not, you know. It's like um, again, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but the sympathetic nervous system is o- is often the thing that is activated when we go into you know severe anxiety or panic. Mm-hmm. So your heart's not beating faster. You get muscles to uh, excuse me, blood to your muscles quicker because mm-hmm. you're going into defense mode. You couldn't survive without your sympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, if it's activated unnecessarily or it's become over-adapted, so it's reacting all the time to situations as, as though it's perceiving threat, mm-hmm. that's when it's problematic or that's when it often becomes problematic that we are in some ways overreacting, you know, and that's when we need to hopefully... That again, that's where CBT can be useful in learning techniques to... Relate. I think what you you know what you were t- talking about there uh, really resonates with me, Brian. It's not. It's working with clients. I think CBT when it's done well and ethically, and you get you know good results, shall we say? Um, it it's working, building that relationship with the relationship up between the clients and the therapist to a stage where you learn those techniques and the techniques that work for you. You know, it, it is very much a an individual process as well. Someone mm-hmm. can have CBT and feel that they had, you know, an experience where technique A and technique B were fantastic and they could go and tell that to their friend and the friend tries and goes, I thought that was useless, didn't help me at all. You know, it's very much the, it, it's very much on an, uh, it's like they say with, if, if you've met somebody who really struggles with social anxiety, you've met one person who struggles with social anxiety because yeah. of course we're all human beings, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So we all... Um, and social it, anxiety it's just in itself is... I suppose what you I think that's what you've just said there. It's it's different for every single person. What what how I would describe social anxiety for myself would be completely different how yeah. you would, would, would describe it. And again with, with CBT, it's and CBT is massive, isn't it? You know, there's you know, and again, <laughs> like like I've sort of keep saying, and I think probably the fact I'm keep saying it means that maybe we should do it, as in have an episode just on CBT, that we're now 
onto what's called the third wave of CBT and there's lots of different offshoots of, of CBT because it is so big. Yeah. And again, that's what I like about it because what works for one doesn't necessarily work for somebody else. And my explanation to CBT for people is it's about almost giving you a tool bag that you can carry around with you um, and when a particular incident happens or when something happens you can look into that tool bag and pick certain tools out rather than just having one thing that that you use um definitely yeah you know for example we said about we mentioned homework before or tasks sometimes clients don't do it and don't want to do it and can't do it and don't find it useful so it's not you can only have cbt if you're willing to do homework don't get me wrong you've got to be willing to do work otherwise it won't it won't work no that's true and i think there's enough the research is kind of conclusive that the the greater your level of commitment to CBT to the therapy, the greater the results are, mm. are likely to be. And I think what I mean with that as well, for example, um, like thoughts diaries, for example, are used quite commonly in in CBT where people record the thoughts throughout the week and things like that. But um, some people don't find that useful or helpful. So if they don't, that doesn't mean oh well you can't you know good for CBT. Mm. Um, what it means is okay well let's look at something else and then we might do for example um grounding techniques and that's something that you ask a client to go away and practice every day for a week um and it doesn't involve sitting there writing things down and but they might find that useful so there's one tool that they can use where thoughts diaries might not be a tool that 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 works for them yeah definitely i think a key, a key thing with cbt which is again i'm sure why it's so widely um used and uh, accessed rather and, and delivered of course is it's very very adaptable as a as a modality isn't it as mm -hmm. a therapeutic modality um sports persons use cbt all the time you know work with um cbt i guess from more of a coaching perspective or a goal orientated perspective mm -hmm. um off uh, you know uh, people in workplaces whether it's whether it's managers workers more kind of executive environments cbt is worldwide has been delivered um in in again in a very adapted way to suit you know to suit whatever the goal is whatever the the client or the client group is 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 looking to 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 work towards um so i think cbt one of the reasons why cbt is so widely prescribed shall we say and so widely encouraged is because you can very much adapt it to the individual to the person and what's going on for them or or what and also what area of the life that they're looking to get support in do you know what i mean yeah definitely and i think the other thing with again with, with cbt it's it's almost like um especially now again we, we i just mentioned there about the third wave it's almost with cbt you can pick good things from other areas i mean you mentioned like coaching there you know in coaching they use smart goals in cbt we use smart goals yeah um you know mindfulness now is something that is a lot more introduced into cbt mindfulness on its own is a really good therapy especially using sort of mindfulness based stress reduction mm. um therapy is a really really good way of um helping people manage stress but cbt of you know the people who develop CBT and come up with 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 new ways of working have realised that. So they take elements of mind. Okay, let's take this element of mindfulness and out and put this into CBT. Okay, let's take this element of coaching out and put this in. I think even um, you know, like reframing 
is something that's used in CBT. Definitely, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It is. But that originally was um, an NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming Technique. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah. And they used, you know, they've taken that out of, um, out of NLP and, and introduced it into CBT. Yeah, cognitive reframing. That's cognitive yeah. reframing. Um, I forgot about that actually. Yeah, yeah I, l- I love it. I, I, I love. Oh no, no, I did. I didn't forget about the technique. I just yeah. forgot about the fact that it was very much co-opted, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. They it was. stole it. They stole it, and even um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if it's a standalone therapy, but the, um, rewind is that in the tra- trauma treatments in CBT. Yeah, yeah the, re- rewind the rewind technique. therapy. Well, that 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 was again from. Um, NLP and, and hypnotherapy that, that that's a, a right, technique yeah. that's being used in um, in as I say hypnotherapy and NLP for for a long time um, mm. but it's being adapted now for um, I, I wasn't quite sure if it was a standalone or if it was part of CBT because um, I do use rewind but you, when I'm using it um, within hypnotherapy well that's interesting that as well because I think if I was to what what type of therapist would you class yourself as if to ask to to answer that question is a what label would you give yourself as as a, as a therapist so on my cv <laughs> <laughs> cv on the table please <laughs> i i i would class myself as an integrative therapist which basically means i use um, a number of different therapies within my work um, i would probably say i'm rooted and grounded within person-centered counselling. That's what I um, probably. That's my core training. That's my core. Um, yeah, the be- the bedrock like the of the therapy yeah. that, that that I use. Um, I use CBT. Uh, I'm, I've, I've trained in CBT. I've trained in um, clinical hypnotherapy. I've trained in mindfulness. Um, I've trained in solution-focused therapy. Um, so I've done training in all of them sort of main therapies that i've just mentioned i've done other training as well um you know specific to like trauma um and things like that but but they're probably the main the ones i've just mentioned are the main ones that i use and the reason why i like to be integrative is because again probably from my person centered training is it's about what's best for the client so if a client comes to see me and they're experiencing anxiety for example generally i would use more of a cbt approach because the evidence suggests that cbt for anxiety works really well mm-hmm. um, an interest that i've got you know a really big interest that i have is with um, adhd and working with people with adhd um, again the research suggests that cbt works really well with people with adhd because it's um, goal orientated it's quite directive um, and it's very structured People with ADHD find that really that those ways of working really helpful, and so a lot of the techniques. Um, although there's more research now that mindfulness actually works quite well with people with ADHD. So right, okay. again, that's why I um, use use mindfulness. Can so I just say as well? You said that you have an interest in ADHD, so I'm gonna, uh, if I am, I'm gonna critique that a little bit because okay. for uh, our listeners. You're, it's more than an interest. You're a bit of a whiz kid with ADHD. <laughs> um, I well. will. Uh, I'm. I'm comfortable <laughs> dropping that one. The exclusive there that you are a, a very, very impressive source of knowledge when it comes to ADHD. So, when you work with um, 
when you're working in that, we should actually do an episode on ADHD, you know. Definitely, I definitely would like to do. And yeah, we're gonna I have mean, more episodes than Brookside here. We carry <laughs> on. <laughs> and do you know, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I have got good knowledge of ADHD because it's something I've been interested in for a long time for, um, you know, lots of different reasons, some personal experience, um, what got me interested in, in ADHD. And then um, when I was learning CBT, I'd done a placement um, at the ADHD Foundation. Um, yeah, and it's just something that I find really interesting and something that I've developed an interest and knowledge in o- over the years. But if we were to do an, in, a, an episode on it, which I'd like to do, um, I think I'd probably like to get maybe a, a guest on who was even more um, immersed in that world, sort of thing, and had more knowledge than me. Um, right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah that would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely look into that because I'd, I'd be really fascinated to um, learn from that uh, from that conversation without a doubt. Mm-hmm. So. Um, what what about yourself? Sorry, because I'm just. Well, oh, how, how, um, how would you describe your um, way of working? I would say similar to yourself, but with a slightly different kind of, um, I, I guess, slightly different background. But yeah, if I was to put a label on my um, my skills, if you like, my way of working as a therapist, it would very much be an, I'm an integrative therapist um so i've got qualifications in um in person-centered counseling i've got qualifications in solution focused uh, brief solution focused th- therapy um i've got a degree in psychology but cbt is what i've really kind of really you know trained in that's my primary modality shall we say so yeah cbt i've got a master's in cbt um and but again, I think the reason why one of the reasons why I asked you that before, Brian, is because I think it's interesting that f- I'm. This is obviously my opinion. I think any therapist. I won't say any therapist, but I think most therapists that are um, working in an ethical way and to come back to that Carl Rogers, you know, the, those core conditions of Carl Rogers, working in the best interests of the client and working very much from the perspective of the client and how they're experiencing things. Um, any therapist who's, you know, who's going to do a good job, you're very much working in an integrative way anyway. You know, you're using the resources that you've got or the skills and qualifications that you've you've you know attained to support to support the client sitting in front of you. Do you know what I mean? As opposed to the tunnel vision of, no, no, no. If it doesn't fit into my very you know direct way of doing CBT, then there's nothing I can do for you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I think, you know, again, I think people who train in one modality and that's the modality for them and they immerse themselves in it and become experts in it, um, then going right the way back to what we said at the very beginning, if a client knows maybe they've had therapy before and it's worked really well, if they know that person said the counselling's for them and they go and see a a purist person centrist, yeah, counsellor then then that that might work fine i suppose again and another analogy to use is you know if you go to the gym to, to get a personal trainer generally you go to the gym and get a personal trainer that knows a little bit about everything you know 
the a bit of strength training, a bit of cardio training, a little bit of um, sort of you know other types of personal training, mm. rather than going to a personal trainer that was specifically just trained in strength. So all you would do with them is just strength training, or all you would do with them is I like that. Yeah, that's a good analogy. That uh, for mobility training, for for example. Um, mm. Ideally, you want to go to. A, I'd imagine unless you're training for something specific, you would want to go to a personal trainer that ha- knew a little bit of everything and was able to, you know, do a little bit of strength training, do a bit of mo- uh, mobility training, do a little bit of cardio training, do a little bit of yeah, yeah, some, something else. Um, you're probably going to get the most out of that. I think. I'd imagine. I would guess so. Yeah, and I, I. Um I think again it comes back to that sense of empowerment you know it's like paradoxical empowerment isn't it you are empowering the your clients whether it's a as a, a, a you know in the gym or obviously as a as a therapist in the therapy room you're empowering your clients as to what works for them what's most suitable for them as you right I, I completely agree as well you know it is finding that you know maintaining those boundaries if you're offering CBT and then you just start delivering this completely different modality just because you happen to be trained in it or have read a book on it that's unethical in many ways you know so I think it's it's right that you need to be again come back to it you know congruent and empathic with the client you know you're if you're offering CBT whether it's in your job or that's what you've advertised yourself as that's what the client's expecting you know so it's mm-hmm. important to be to be very much um, working as a team yeah, rather yeah. than you just saying I'll throw in like kitchen sink therapy, mm-hmm. you know. I'll just do anything that I can think of, and one of them will fit. Yeah. It's like that's that can be unethical in many ways. So it's definitely about finding that balance. I d- I do agree, you know. Um, very much finding what can be useful, but also in the client's understanding of things and in the client's perspective, mm-hmm. they they you know they are a key component of therapy, as we keep coming back to, is the client is experiencing what they're experiencing, not you're telling them what they're experiencing, you know? Yeah, and that's that's why it's also really important that the very either first session or assessment session, depending on how you work, that you sit down with the client and go through what it is that the client wants, what yeah. what's their expectations. Um, what's their reason for therapy? What's yeah. their expectations? You know, as we as I said before, if it's CBT, what's the goal? What is What would be a, a good outcome from this? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Just for the kind of final final couple of minutes we mentioned at the beginning of this episode about some of the myths and assumptions um and maybe stereotypes that have uh, been attached to or maybe shall we say have, have developed over the years around person-centered and uh, counseling and and obviously and definitely cbt as well can we have a little bit of a myth busting class for a couple of minutes what's yeah, yeah what comes to mind for you when you think of cbt as maybe a stigma or um well i think a myth again is is cbt is the only therapy that exists or cbt is the only yeah. therapy that really works um, as well as it does work really really well it's not for everything and it's not for everybody yeah i think it can be over adapted can't it it can be yes uh, weaponized to be you can do cbt for anything and it'll mm-hmm. it'll work and i agree yeah as I, as i say i'm a cbt therapist i class myself as cbt um as my you know as my key training if you like but definitely i think there's it can be very unfortunately it can be easily weaponized and it can be quite uh, sold oversold and missold definitely yeah i agree um i think 
with person centered um counseling it's about you just sit there and talk you just let you go and talk to the therapist and that's it yeah it's directionless and it's yeah, yeah that's a def i think that's a huge myth with counseling um so i would even elaborate on that brian i think counselors don't say anything they're like yeah. a, i think i think i heard it described once as like blank screen counts blank screen therapy um so you're just talking at your therapist uh, talking at your counselor and that's their job is just to sit there and passively listen to you and that's as we for, for all the reasons we've described and all, all of the you know the the points we've highlighted around Carl Rogers theory that's not true at all you're not passively listening to a, to somebody in therapy yeah, I think if for me if you go to a person centered counselor session and all the counselor does throughout the whole session is go mm, hmm then it's probably not the questionable right shall we <laughs> Not that I counsel it for you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I think within within person centered counselling as well, it, it is that um, yeah, you're just going to go there and talk, and that, that's all it's about. Which it, it, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, definitely. Um, Again, I d- you know I think I've mentioned, described it before as like directionless. Mm-hmm. Just you know, there's no uh, theme, and even if there's no concrete direction, you you were describing this, talking about this before, Brian. That sense of in counselling, sometimes people will turn up and say, "I don't." Uh, on my way here, I was thinking, "I don't know what I'm going to say tonight," mm-hmm. but I definitely wanted to come. There's a starting point. Yeah. You're sitting in front of a therapist, and there will be, and you and you're doing it voluntarily, so. There's an element What's of direction, but it's just very, very, very gentle. Yeah, um, I agree. And I think, it, again, exploring your identity mm-hmm. in relation to every day or everyday life, most people's, I would say, everyday life, can feel a bit directionless yeah, yeah. because there's no clear functionality. Mm-hmm. In You know, there's no trodden path. It's your identity. It's your life story. So that can feel a bit intimidating and a little bit abnormal that... Definitely well, what's the A to B of this? Mm. And sometimes that can be, well, it's not always a a clear, you know, point one, point A goes to point B. Sometimes it's a little bit of a, you know, your own personal mm. adventure, shall we say. I think another thing that, uh, in regards to sort of like sort of myths and misconceptions and things like that, I think um, for people to, you know, if people want to access counselling and therapy and they contact the therapist and the therapist says to them oh yeah i can i can fix that or i can make that better or i, I can definitely 100 percent help you and um, i think it's just again just maybe being a bit wary of that as well because yeah um, without a the therapist is not going to know whether they can help you or not until you've actually sat in a room with you and gone through you know i always say to um you know clients that contact me and they'll say you know can you help me with this or you know i'll say well I'll, you know i can certainly try and we can see see where it goes, and you know, hopefully, yeah, I, I can. But I can never one hundred percent guarantee that I can I can help that person because I might not be the right counselor for them. Yeah, ab- absolutely, and I think that's a very it's ethical, isn't it? You know, that's mm-hmm. the way counselors, hopefully, and, and all therapists should should work. Um, yeah, that sense of can you help me? Can you fix me? Is another way of saying can you help yeah. me in, in a lot in a lot of respects and I think that is something to be mindful of as well it's a bit of a myth 
that therapists can read your mind. Yeah. This is something with psychology, you know, that's say um, um, psychology graduates and, and particularly going into psychotherapy, this idea that therapists can read your mind. I would suggest that as a good rule of thumb, if any therapist is comes across as though they're trying to read your mind, you've probably got the wrong therapist. Run. <laughs> Run. <laughs> no, as fast as you can. But um, yeah, no, I, I think that can be... A, the reason why I, p- I just want to mention that because I think that can be a... For, for a person who's never had any kind of reference points or engagement with this world, you know, psychotherapy or psychology, that can maybe again be a little bit of an I- of a point of intimidation, that sense of yeah. you're going to start psychoanalyzing everything I say or every move I make or don't make. Yeah. You're going to start wanting to um, root around into my childhood, I think, is another thing yeah. that can be a bit of a cartoon image of therapy. Maybe, you know, stretching back to the uh, Freudian theory, you know, Sigmund Freud and... Mm-hmm. Psychodynamic approach, and again, I think that's very much a cartoon image of most therapy, you know, yeah. modern day therapy sessions. I mean, I think there's there's some relevance, isn't there, with, with depending on what it is that the client brings. That you may go to childhood and look at, you know, you may you sometimes I do um, like a timeline, a life timeline of you know from young right up to whatever age they are. Um, but it's only if that's sort of quite relevant to something. Um, but I yeah, agree. Yeah, not every client yeah. that comes, you would say, "Oh, so tell me about your childhood," um, t- type of thing. Um, that that definitely is a bit of a myth that every person that comes, we will start looking at childhood and mm. get sort of transfixed on that. Um, I do think um, there's a place for that, and that does happen sometimes if it's needed. But yeah, it's not off the table. I yeah, I completely agree. It's not. It's certainly not off the table, and it can be a. a as you say, a, a fo- com, you know, a central component of, of therapy. But I think the word you just used is is spot on. It this assumption that you are transfixed mm-hmm. on your childhood is very much a cartoon uh, myth mm-hmm. of of you know of therapy sessions. Um, some other myths as well. Therapy is really expensive and it's lifelong. I've come across that one. No people yeah. thinking that. I wouldn't know. You know. Where to start? If I started with therapy, I'd, I'd love therapy. I've heard that uh, that's been shared with me from people a few times. You know, I'd love to go to therapy, but I haven't got the money. I haven't got the time, and sit and also, if I start in therapy, I'm scared I'd never stop. Mm-hmm. And I think that is an understandable um, assumption, shall we say? It's my assumption, probably more than a myth. That isn't mm-hmm. it? And it's an understandable assumption, um, but. I think it's largely disproven for most people don't spend their entire life in therapy. No. And it can be unethical, actually, as well, Definitely. to stay in therapy for too long if it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it can be useful to, if you are looking to have, have therapy on a long-term basis, which in my experience as well, a lot of people don't have therapy long-term. They have a course of therapy which can go on for months or a year, two years, but they don't, it's not like most people are in therapy for years on end, you know, without any... I would probably, I would probably say... The clients that I see on average is between eight and twelve sessions. Mm. So that could be between eight and twelve weeks, or sometimes after eight weeks we might move to two weekly sessions and 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 things like that. Don't get me wrong, I have clients who've come for twenty odd sessions and longer, um, but on average, if I had to average it, it'd be between eight and twelve. I, I for me, yeah, I agree, and I think the NHS guidance i appreciate not everybody works in the nhs as a therapist but 
think as a, as a rule of thumb the NHS guidance is around that and uh, and also the the guidelines for working with like mood disorders like anxiety disorders and, mm-hmm. and depression is 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 similar to what you're saying it's about 12 sessions maybe depending on you know what what um what the person was was struggling with if it was trauma it might be more like 16 to 20 sessions but even then as you say Brian that's like 16 to 20 weeks or maybe add another five or ten weeks on top of that it's certainly not mm. seen as like years and years of therapy you know I always think it's good even if I do a block of sessions with people and they still need feel like they need more I always think it's good to have a break anyway yeah um, definitely you know, yeah. and then maybe come back and dip in and out I think that that can be something that people do they dip in and out of therapy and because they see it as an ongoing um growth um, which is fine you know I think that's okay um, and again with the expense side of things you know if you go to your GP um he can refer you to an NHS provider there's lots of really good um charities out there whether it's to do with domestic abuse bereavement um, things like that just general counseling where it's free okay the downside is often the waiting lists are quite big um, but even paying privately for therapy um, there's lots of different price ranges within that um, and again I just say to people just if, if you are looking to pay privately just because maybe someone's charging a lot more than maybe the next person doesn't necessarily mean that they're more experienced or better it might just be that the room they're renting is a lot more expensive yeah something uh, as simple as that um i agree yeah and i think it comes back to again what we've discussed in this episode it's what works for you you're finding the right fit rather than you know the person who's the most qualified shall we say or even the most sells themselves the mm-hmm. best you know nothing against that's not a kind of subverted criticism of any no, anyone no. at all it's just as a I think therapy is definitely more accessible now which is de- getting better definitely. it's still got a long way to go mental health provisions but it's definitely I think in previous generations previous decades it was very much a middle class thing therapy you know yeah. it was it was very much uh, it was expensive and it was seen as you know, a, a, a more, as I say, yeah, I guess a more middle class to put that label on it, um, provision. But uh, but nowadays, that's that's, I'm I honestly do believe that stigma is becoming loosened and all the better for it as well. You know that more people have got access. Therapy is not a sign of weakness as well. That's not that's a big myth, and that's really one that sticks in my throat as well. That it's in any way, you know, shows that you're not tough enough to handle life, or you're not. I actually think it does the opposite. I think it, it shows the strength that you have. I really yeah. do believe that. To recognise that there's stuff going on for you and you go there to try and change it. Again, yeah. a bit like use the analogy of going to see a, a personal trainer in the gym. Uh, therapy should just be just as yeah. uh, the same thinking as that. You know, go to the gym. Okay, I can go to the gym and do my own stuff. But actually, if I go and see a PT who's more of an expert and trained in it, they'll get the best out of me. Um, I'll get the best results going to see a therapist is exactly the same you can go off and try and work on yourself by yourself which great but actually by going to see a therapist they'll get the best out of you well, i couldn't agree more it's a great analogy as well i mean it sounds absolutely ludicrous doesn't it to say you go in the gym well you know what sort of person are you why do you need the gym to get yourself you why know you physically why do you need a pt like are yeah you, are you too weak to go by yourself Exactly. Or if you went to the hospital for a f- an operation on your physical self, let's say, or treatment on your physical self, whether it was physio or, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, as I say, an operation, 
you wouldn't dream of saying you're weak because you're doing that. And yet, because you had physio or because you had, you know, they you had your broken leg was was reset or something. You know what I mean? You'd never say that you were weak for that. And yeah, I do. I think it's it's certainly getting better, but I do believe there's a long way to go. So it's definitely getting better. They loosen that stigma because that's a big myth as well. That it's a sign of weakness to um, explore yourself and engage in therapy. That's yeah. just not true at all. And w- one more myth, I think, be a good one to end on. Yeah, um, go on. That un- unless you're doing maybe hypnotherapy, but generally, if you go to therapy, it's a myth that you'll be lying on a chaise long. See, I was disappointed by that as well, because <laughs> I always wanted to lie on a chaise long. <laughs> I never had one. I mean, I have a couch in my therapy mm. room. If people want to lie down, they can, but it's not expected, and not many people do. Well, You're lying on it now. Nobody's <laughs> a th- I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody does. Um, so, yeah, just in case people think they've got to go and lie down and start talking about the childhood and um, stuff like yeah, that. That's, that, that, that's yeah. a great point, and I think, again, that, that definitely harks back to the the cartoon image from the Freudian um, you know, caricature of therapy that, as you say, Come in, you lie on a sh- lie down on a chaise lounge, and this boffin in a white coat, yeah, wants to hear all about your childhood, and will will tell you what's, you know, why you're a broken person. That's a complete not a load of hogwash, yeah. and uh, yeah, <laughs> and and luckily, as I say again, all these myths, I do feel like there's still a bit of a way to go, but all of them are becoming more like. Known as myths rather think, than and I think you know misunderstandings and I think you uh, like you said before now there are a lot more people who are coming to therapy like I get lo- lo- loads of like young lads and stuff coming to therapy they obviously go away and hopefully I know some of them do because they tell me they do go away and talk to their mates and again all of those stigmas are getting broken down because just your normal average person like ourselves are starting to access therapy now because it is more accessible and it's more um, understood and they're then going back out into the world and spreading that round that actually yeah, you don't do all of those things that we've just said. Um, so yeah. So I'm just um aware that we're coming to the end and before we finish, I just like to know what our next episode's gonna be. Our next episode. You know what? I could sit here all day. I enjoyed that conversation, <laughs> Brian. Me too. Uh so our next episode is going to be well, it's titled Why Do I Have Anxiety? Answers on a postcard. Right, okay. Why do I have anxiety? So we're going to have a good chat about anxiety, what it is, what it isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we're going to we're going to explore that that, you know, what anxiety can lead to when it's not treated, and what yeah. it's not when it's when it's um it goes unacknowledged, shall we say? Mm-hmm. And also as well, I think it would be good for us to share some techniques that we do use in sessions and that we've obviously learned through our um through our training and, and through our jobs, that sense of um, what can what can you do to actually maybe regulate yourself a bit more? And as we were saying when we were talking about TBT earlier on today, that sense of relating to your anxiety, yeah, you know. So sharing some techniques as well, I think, hopefully, will be quite helpful. Definitely, yeah, sounds good. I think, um, yeah, I think spending a whole episode on anxiety is a good uh, a good episode to do, and we'll explore the different types of anxiety social anxiety health anxiety generalized anxiety Um, i think we'll probably we'll go into a bit of depth on all the different anxieties and how we would um work with them within within the therapy room i think sold sounds good to me so i'd say that that's a wrap for this week 
See you next time. See you next week. Thank you.